0: Why good morning It's a real blessing to be here I was looking forward to this I love to teach young people Because you are the next generation I'm 76 years old I will soon pass from the scene It will be your turn And I hope we have a lot of prophets (laughs) Coming out of this group Let's stand and sing Oh Lord within my soul I long for purity To be complete and whole Please, salvation, full salvation, free must come alone through thee. I bend before thy cross and know my heart can be cleansed from its sin and draw us alone through thee. There is no other hope, there is no other plea. Salvation, full salvation, free must come alone through Thee. Shall we pray? Yes, Father, we know that if we are to be salvaged from who we are, our intense selfishness and sin, it will be alone through You. And it will be a miracle of Your grace. And I pray, Lord, as we think together over these coming days, help us to get really practical and really serious about all of that. And help us to develop a passion to be like Jesus, the person who was totally unselfish and totally sinless and a powerful testimony of your grace. Bless us this day with your word in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a sign here uh, right in front of me That I really appreciate Sir we would see Jesus I first saw that at the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago I don't know who put it there But it's a tremendous reminder To every person who stands here to preach Sir we would see Jesus We don't want uh, opinions We don't want uh, All kinds of generated ideas We want to see Jesus Okay Now Uh In the year 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson gave a speech at Ohio University stating that his goal as president was to create a great society. I well remember that. And in that great society proposal, there were three aspects. One was the Civil Rights Bill to get rid of all racial discrimination. The second thing was the Economic Opportunity Act to eliminate poverty. So he wanted to eliminate racism, he wanted to eliminate poverty, and then the last part of it was volunteers in service to America, his VISTA program, which was to raise the level of American education. Those were the three things that he hoped to do, get rid of poverty, get rid of racism, get rid of ignorance, and we'd have a great society. Well, by 1968, four years later, his hopes of leaving a legacy of domestic reform were seriously in jeopardy. We were in the middle of a terrible uh, Vietnam War. And his external changes did some good, but I think you'll, uh, you can conclude now we never saw the Great Society. 2,000 years earlier, Jesus also inaugurated a Great Society. He called it the Kingdom of God, or the Kingdom of Heaven. And he based his society not on external changes like Lyndon B. Johnson did... He based his concept of a great society on internal changes. He realized that a few people who really were transformed by the supernatural power of God could get more accomplished than any legislation could ever accomplish. And I often think about it. You know, the history of men is not the history of great eras when things were better than others. They're the history of great men. Uh, Those eras where things were, were, were wonderful were the result of a few people. People like Elijah, people like Moses, people like Jesus, people like uh, uh, Menna Simons, uh, people like Michael Sadler, people like John Amos Comenius, the last bishop of the old Hussite Moravian church, who when he was driven out of his country, stood on top of the mountain and said, I have planted a hidden seed and it will someday bear fruit, and that was the Moravian movement you've all heard about, which came uh, about another generation later. So... I think the history of mankind is that great men have made great eras in the history of men, especially in the history of Christianity. Now, what Jesus had to say was the exact opposite of what you would expect for success. It was totally counterintuitive, totally counterintuitive uh, to turn the other cheek when you're wrong, to not accumulate wealth, to uh, uh, not swear oaths. But to always be honest, even when it's terribly inconvenient. All of those things are the exact opposite of what you would expect a person who's successful to experience. Um, Jeremiah says, oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not within himself. That is so true. It is not within man that walketh to direct his steps. All of our intuitive responses in the flesh are the exact opposite. Of what God wants us to do. In fact, I would say the definition for sin is selfishness. Just think about that a little bit. I talk to people who call on the billboard line and they sometimes say, well, what's sin? And I could give them a theological definition. In fact, I have already. And then you get into this big debate about it. But if I say selfishness, I've never had a person disagree with me. Never have I also had a person disagree with me that selfishness was the greatest problem of the human race. ...that has caused us the greatest amount of sorrow. So, that said, uh, that's why everything that we would do, intuitively, is wrong. (laughs) Because it comes out of self. Okay? All right. so, we want to look now at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you ask me to come to your church and preach whatever I want to preach... uh, ...you are likely to hear messages from this passage of Scripture... It's an amazing passage of scripture. It is the constitution of the kingdom of God. It's half the length of the U.S. Constitution uh, for a much larger kingdom. And I just marvel every time I study this, I'm amazed at the wisdom in this little Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, we want to do some Bible memory. We're going to have you memorize this week uh, verses uh, 1 through 12. And so you can just plan to do one through four tomorrow morning and we'll quote it together. And maybe at the end of the week, I'll actually have you write it out. I'm not sure. We'll see how that that goes. All right. So what do we have here in this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount? For years, I wasn't quite sure why the Sermon on the Mount began without talking about the new birth. That would be intuitive, wouldn't it? That if you're going to have a constitution of the kingdom of God, you should start with the new birth. And it took me a long time before I finally realized that's exactly what you have here at the beginning. Not only do you have the picture of the new birth as an event beginning in chapter verse 3, but you have the whole process that it involves. What begins to happen? A whole cascade of characteristics that begin to occur in the life of a person who has been born again. So you have a blow-by-blow description of what the new birth looks like. When it happens, what kind of characteristics start to come forth and begin to grow in the life of the person who has been born again? All right, it says that Jesus sat to give this teaching. They tell us that rabbis walked around when they gave instruction, or they stood. But if they really wanted to give an official statement, they sat and their disciples listened standing. Uh, we still have that today uh, represented. If you go to any great cathedral, they will take you to the cathedral. That's what a cathedral means, the place where the cathedral is. And the cathedral is the seat where the bishop sits, where he sits. It's his seat. And so that's still recognized that if a man's going to really intensively teach his disciples, he'll sit to teach. And so, I guess you can say I'm not teaching this morning. But anyway, <laughs> maybe I should get a chair and sit here in front. I'm sure you would be impressed. Anyway, so here Jesus is giving the Magna Carta of his kingdom. And he begins with the word blessed. Now, <clears throat> some people sort of have this idea that, me, that blessed means how wonderful and happy you are. That's not what this word blessed means. This blessed means there is a blessing going to be bestowed on you. It's something you're going to be given you're going to receive a blessing from God, okay? It's not a feeling, it's a gift bestowed. It's an exclamation, "Blessed! congratulations. You're in the best position you could possibly be in. You, there's no situation where you could possibly receive the resource of heaven poured upon you like you will be as these characteristics come forth. So it's an exclamation of congratulations. For the gift that is bestowed. Uh, wonderful. Because God is not here to give us happiness, a feeling of happiness. I don't know, it, it, are you familiar with the word hap? It was Ruth's hap to be in the field of Boaz. It means it just was her circumstance. She was in a good circumstance. Happiness is based on good circumstances. Uh, and you know how they are. Sometimes they, you go up, and sometimes you go down with your circumstances. But this is not based on that. The Christian's life is not determined by circumstances at all. When a man can stand and sing while he's being burned at the stake, which would, I would say, would be the worst circumstance you could possibly ever get yourself into. And he can stand and praise God while that's happening. Then certainly this blessing, this joy of the Lord has nothing to do with circumstances. It transcends circumstances. And that's exactly what God wanted. He wanted something internally that was supernaturally powerful that would overcome any circumstance. In John 16:22, he says, "Your joy no man taketh from you." The people who depend on circumstances are always up and down, they're bipolar. I went to my doctor one time and said to him, "What do you think of all these diagnoses of people who are bipolar?" And he threw back his head and laughed. He said, "John, we're all bipolar." He said, when our circumstances please us, our feelings go up. And when they don't please us, they go down. And I'll let you meditate on that. But uh, Christians are not bipolar. They, they are not governed. They are not controlled. They are not uh, dominated by their circumstances. They've gotten to a place of rest and peace and genuine joy, which is a sense of well-being. Which is a sense that all will be well. I went through the Old Testament one time when I was reading. I underlined all the times that God says that it may be well with you. That's what we're talking about. Shalom. Success. Prosperity. In the true sense of the word. So, we want to start right in today and see how far we get. So, we'll look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And if you're taking notes, I have reworded these so that they have a real practical flavor to them. This one I have called destitute in spirit. Now, there are two Greek terms for poor, they tell me. One is the person who has just enough to get by. And the other one is the term that means abject poverty, nothing and no hope of anything. That's the Greek term that's used here. Poor in spirit, destitute in spirit. A declaration of dependence. You all know about the declaration of independence. Well, this is a declaration of dependence. Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. And he meant that. He meant exactly that. People call me on the billboard line and sometimes say, well, can I be a good person without Jesus? And I said, oh, I said, there's a light that lights every man that comes into the world. Sure, you can do a lot of good things that make yourself feel like you're a good person. But when when push comes to shove and marriage gets difficult, most of you are going to run. And when telling the truth is going to put you in a corner, you're going to to fudge on the truth a little bit. And when somebody does you wrong, you're going to try to put some hurt back on them, gossip about them or something. And I certainly don't think you're going to give your resources, your money away. You're, You're going to accumulate wealth for yourself. To obey Jesus requires supernatural enablement. I tell my charismatic friends, you people want to see all kinds of miracles. Live the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see lots of them. It requires a miracle to live that way. This is a declaration of, of dependence. Uh, some of you have seen me give this, but I always give it because I, I don't want us ever to forget it. And this comes from Francis Schaefer. Francis Schaefer said, before a person is a Christian... Well, he says in the first place, there's a throne and a cross in every heart. Before the person is a Christian, Christ self is on the throne and Christ is on the cross. And the change that takes place when you become a Christian... Is you put Christ on the throne and you put self on the cross. And I want to say something and you keep him there. Because self loves to get down off the cross. And so I always illustrate the cross this way. This is self and this is Christ. And so here we go along in life. We're taking a way in life and all of a sudden we realize the way of Christ intersects that way. And this was in fact the way of the flesh. Or at least there was an awful lot of flesh in it. And I all of a sudden come to this place. I'm standing down in the car lot, fellas. I'm buying a car. And ah, here's the dream car. This will make a statement. All heads will turn when I drive with. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, Jesus didn't teach such a thing. And so now we have to make a decision Are we going to keep going our own way, or are we going to go the way of Christ? And that's why Jesus said we have to take up our cross every day. Because every day you're making decisions and every day you have to do this over and over again. And that's the best way I can describe the new birth. It's it's a commitment to this. It's a commitment to Christ on the throne. It's a commitment to the lordship of Christ. Now when I was a boy growing up, that was never taught. I never heard, believe it or not. In a conservative Mennonite church, I never heard a sermon on the lordship of Christ. And I certainly never heard a sermon on the kingdom of God. I heard what I call a save me gospel. You need to get saved so you can go to heaven when you die. Well, that's true. But Jesus didn't talk much about that. He talked more about getting heaven to earth. And that's what we're talking about here in this Sermon on the Mount. It's the attitude of a learner. When we come to Christ, we have almost everything to unlearn and almost everything to learn. Because as I told you, it's all counterintuitive. Our natural inclinations go in the exact opposite direction. We have to learn. We have to uh, uh, apply discipline uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to correct this way that, that goes uh, in the direction of self. It, it's, it's a constant attitude of a learner. I often illustrate it this way to my callers that call. I said, let's illustrate it this way. You need a new kidney. So you go to the surgeon. And you crawl up on the operating table. And then you say to the surgeon, would you please give me a local anesthesia? I don't want a general anesthesia. And this is the reason why. You and I are going to discuss each cut. And if we agree, you'll cut. And if we don't agree, you won't. How many of you think a surgeon would agree to that operation? I don't see any hands. Why not? You die on the operating table. You know nothing about surgery, of, of anything for that matter, let alone a kidney. And so the surgeon is not going to do that operation unless he has absolute control because he's the only one that knows how to do it. And he's going to cut, and it's going to hurt. But surgeons don't cut to hurt, they cut to heal. Hurt is part of the process. Jesus is going to cut to hurt. Here's a young fellow, I talked to him on the phone, he's living with his girlfriend, and I have to tell him, if you're serious about following Jesus, you need to break off that relationship and seek the Lord before you enter into uh, marriage eventually. Ooh, I love her, that tears my heart up. Yes, of course, but that's exactly what happens, and it happens to all of us. God cuts out that car you wanted to buy. God cuts out that dress you wanted to make the way you wanted to make it. It's just a constant cutting, but it's a cut to heal. It yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And righteousness is nothing more than getting life right, (laughs) living it the way it's supposed to be lived. All right. We need to be brought to total trust in God. How many have read the uh, accounts of George Mueller? Well, you should. His favorite verse in the Bible, or the verse he based his whole life on, was Psalm 81.10. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. But opening our mouth wide involves what I just pictured there. Okay? Or Louis Pasteur, to show you a little bit how we are. Louis Pasteur was a chemist. He was not a doctor. And uh, up until the time of Louis Pasteur, uh, diseases were considered to be the result of bad vapors and uh, superstitious ideas of all sorts. And uh, they did strange, strange things like letting blood and all that. Louis Pasteur one day looked at a, a drop of blood through a microscope and he saw these squiggly little things. And he discovered the whole idea of germs. So he went to the doctors and said the reason why one third of your people are dying in the hospital is because you're not washing your hands between uh, procedures. And you're carrying germs from one person to another. If you start washing your hands, all this death will be greatly reduced. And they laughed at him. They said, you're not a doctor. You're a chemist. You don't know anything about, surgery, uh, about doctor, uh, physicians' behavior. We, we're, we're, we're physicians. We know. Well, in order for the, any scientist to learn anything, they have to sit down before the facts and let the facts speak and lay aside all their preconceived ideas and let those facts speak. And that's what we have here. Jesus is saying, sit down as a learner. Be poor in spirit. Be destitute. Say, I know nothing. I'm going to learn it all from Jesus. I'm going to take his word for it. It's all going to be counterintuitive. As we go through these messages, it's all counterintuitive. And it all takes a miracle. So that's destitute in spirit. That's how we enter in. That's how we get into the kingdom. That's the new birth. Making this change that I just described there on the whiteboard. Well... These these all lead to each other. This is a cascade of uh, events that take place that follow that. Because once that happens, your eyes are all together seeing something different. God is different. I'm different. The world is different in the way I view it. I see the holiness of God like Isaiah. And I realize, like John says... This is the message we've heard of him, that in God there is no darkness at all. If any man says he walks in the light and walks in darkness, he lies. We realize that, that this is a holy God. We can have no connection with him unless we come to terms with sin. And we have a lot of sin, we see that. And the world... What we thought was funny and laughed at it on the uh, TV uh, comics that they have, I I don't know if you've ever, I've been in places already where they were playing these comedies and people were laughing at preachers and laughing at fathers and laughing at all kinds of sinful stuff. It's not funny anymore. We see the world as a, a huge tragedy, a battlefield where people are dying from their own stupidity and their own misguided ways. And so that's why the second one here is blessed are they that mourn. That's, that's a good experience. In fact, if you say you're converted and you haven't had that transformation in your understanding of God, in your understanding of your undoneness, and your understanding of the wickedness of the world and its misguided ways, if, if that has not completely changed, then you might question whether you actually got into the kingdom. Because that's, that's the next thing that happens. A total different concept of life emerges. Now again... <clears throat> The word mourn, they say in the Greek, has two meanings. This meaning is the meaning that means the worst possible sorrow you could experience. It's Jacob mourning for his lost son, Joseph. And he could not be comforted. He could not be comforted. This is the severest kind of mourning that the the Greek could possibly convey to us. The world doesn't have it. And as a result, they are cynical They're negative. They are bitter. They are distrustful. I mean, I talk to them every day. They're disillusioned people. They've gone down a dead-end street. They say life has no meaning. Okay? A boy committed suicide, and he left this suicide note. Died of old age at 21. He had run through all of life And every one of them was a dead-end street and a pile of ashes at the end. But sorrow deepens and matures us. The story is told of a singer who stood up to sing. She sang her part flawlessly with a beautiful voice. And there was a, a critic musician sitting in the audience. And somebody went to him and asked him, well, what did you think of the solo? And he said it was beautiful. But it'll be absolutely, incredibly beautiful if something happens to break her heart. There will be a note of sympathy in that song that only sorrow can give. Sorrow deepens and matures. It heightens our sensitivity. And what's the promise to this one? The promise is that we will be comforted. We will be comforted. We'll We'll see changes in our life. We'll see changes in the life of other people. William Booth one time. Got a telegram from one of his uh, Workers out there and they said nothing's happening We've preached and we've visited Door to door and we've done everything We can think of to do and we're getting no Results He sent back one Little message with two words Try tears Try tears Allow God to break Your heart and that Will make the difference So The promise to the brokenhearted is they will be comforted. They will begin to see, instead of cynicism, instead of all this stuff that's so negative, they will begin to see some positive things happening in their life and in the lives of other people as a result of their sensitivity and brokenheartedness in preaching the message of the gospel. So that's blessed are the merciful. The next one is blessed are the meek. Well, this one is gentle in strength. So now we've had three uh, characteristics, destitute in spirit, which leads us to brokenheartedness because we have different eyes to see. And as a result of those different eyes to see, we relate to other people in a different way. We see them as people in tremendous need like we are. We have seen ourselves and we know that we need to treat them with, with meekness, with humility, with kindness, with gentleness. Okay. Now this is the one where it took years for the Lord to develop much of this characteristic in me. I'm a, number, I'm a type A personality. I'm a bullheaded, stubborn uh, person that, that knows how to get things done. And I had to learn to quit tramping over people. But that's a characteristic that has to grow. The, that starts to come forth in people's lives. The Greek term here means an animal that has been domesticated. It's anger on a leash. The Bible says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. And Philippians says, We are to be blameless and harmless as doves, instead of harsh and self-assertive and controlling, which would be my natural personality. And I hope if you lived around me, you would realize that God has really worked on that part of my life. Why Why can this happen? Well, because we can afford to wait. The Bible says, give place unto wrath. We don't have to control everything. We don't have to deal with every issue. We can be kind. We can be considerate. And then we can wait for the Lord to do what needs to be done uh, in terms of judgment. Um, so th- th- this is just so important that, that we learn to trust in the Lord uh, Psalm 73, 37, 3 says this, trust in the Lord. Does anybody know what comes right after that? Trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. We can afford to be kind. I tell people, sometimes we have to say things that hurt. I talk to people over the telephone, and sometimes I have to say things that are very hurtful. But the challenge is not to hurt them by the way I say it. you get the difference? It might cut to the bone, but let it be said of them that the words were kind. And it was the words that hurt. You know, Jesus said, I don't judge any man. Did you know that Jesus said that? He never will. He said, the words that I have spoken, they will judge men in the last day. So Jesus himself is never going to personally pass judgment on anybody. It'll just be the words that were spoken. And that's the way it should be with us. That if if there's going to be judgment, if there's going to be hurt... If there's going to be surgery, let it be the words. Let it not be the attitude or the way we did it or the way we said it. I really appreciated the words that were said at Moses Stolzfuss's funeral. Nobody could ever remember Moses being angry. I went to Myron afterward. I said, Myron, you grew up in Moses' home. Is it true that you never saw your father angry? He said, Yes, I never saw my father angry. What a testimony. That blessed me. It challenged me. It convicted me. Joseph could afford to be that way to his brothers because he said this, I fear God. And so he kept them all in prison. And then the next morning he comes and says, no, I'm going to let you go home. I'm just going to keep one. I fear God. So he had learned this. Uh, Moses led a difficult people for 40 years. And only once lashed out. He was a meek man. He had his anger under control. Well, <clears throat> it's patience. That's another word we could use here, patience. But I want, I, want to, I want to define the word patience. Look it up. It literally means cheerful endurance. It's not endurance that grits your teeth. It's endure, endurance that's cheerful. Patience, cheerful endurance. We are talking about supernatural characteristics here. This all comes out of the new birth. Until this happens, these characteristics are not going to come forth. Uh, And until we yield to that, they will be slow in coming forth, uh, the way some of these have been with me. But there's a tremendous promise here. It says the meek shall inherit the earth. Really? If you talk about this, most people say, well, if you live that way, You'd be a doormat. <clears throat> no. It says the meek shall inherit the earth. The Roman Empire was the strongest empire that the world ever had. But within 200 years, the Christians won the heart of the Roman Empire and Constantine had to give in to that. And that's, I think that's why he claimed to be a Christian. He knew that was the direction things were going. If he wanted to be a political leader, he had to embrace Christianity. But they won that victory in 200 years without lifting a sword. How did they win it? They want it by serving, by dying. If there was a plague and everybody ran away from the city and left the sick, they stayed and risked their lives. Julian the Apostate, who tried to resurrect paganism uh, in a later generation after Christianity had taken over the Roman Empire, he said the reason the Roman Empire is going down, and by the way, it went down after Christianity came into existence, and some people believe that the fall of the Roman Empire was because of Christianity, and, and uh, Julian the Apostate thought that, so he tried to revive the pagan gods, and he utterly failed. And he said, the reason is because these Christians, they not only take care of their own poor and their own sick, they take care of ours too. And he actually advised the pagan priests to imitate the Christians. The meek shall inherit the earth or the Anabaptists. Who were the people who said church and state should be separate after 1,000 years of church and state together? It wasn't Martin Luther, he still used the state to persecute the people who disagreed with him. It wasn't Zwingli, he still used the state to persecute the people who disagreed with him. And so did Calvin. It was your Anabaptist forefathers, they were the pioneers. They were the first people, a hundred years before the Quakers who said state and church should be separate. There should be freedom of conscience. There should be uh, voluntary church membership. There should be adult baptism. They were the pioneers of the freedoms we all enjoy in all of Western civilization. And Leonard Verdine wrote a book, uh, The the, the First Amendment, The Remnant and the First Amendment. And he made the case that all of the freedoms of Western civilization came out of your forefathers. And how did they win that battle? They won it by dying. They want it at the stake. They want it in the torture chamber. They want it by suffering. They want it by service. It is really true that the meek shall inherit the earth. I've given you two examples of how Christianity conquered two great systems. The Roman Empire and the State Church Alliance. This is exciting. Somebody has said, beware of the terrible meek. If you meet a meek person... You might be in real trouble if you don't behave. And it won't be because he did something unkind to you. It'll be because of the way he related to you. <clears throat> it's a little bit like a snake who's crawling through the grass. And it finds a file. And it begins to chew on the file. And then it looks at the file and it sees white dust on it. Oh, I'm making progress. So he keeps chewing. And after a bit, he sees red. And he realizes he's not destroying the file. He's destroying himself. The meek shall inherit the earth. The terrible meek. Number four. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they shall be filled. Did you notice there is a promise with each of these I've been giving you. And there's a promise with this one too. I call this a passion for piety. A passion for piety. Piety. If you come to my congregation, they will say the word that everybody probably will remember me by is the word passion. That's what I look for. I look for passion. If I see some Christian who's just nonchalant and doesn't have any excitement about his relationship with Jesus, doesn't have any passion, I can't make a judgment. God's the one to judge. But I will say this. He's giving me no evidence whatsoever that he has any of this. Because the Christian has a passion for righteousness. And what's righteousness? Righteousness is to be right. To say the right words. To do the right thing. This, this person wants nothing more than to, to be that. Like Jesus was able to just say the right thing and do the right thing and never be wrong. I'm not trying to prove to everybody that I'm always right. By the way, I'm not talking about that attitude. I'm talking about a person who actually is right. His passion is to be right. Whether anybody thinks he is, doesn't matter. But he, he wants to know in his heart that he did the right thing. All right? Again, there are two Greek terms here for this uh, uh, hunger. One means a small piece of bread, and the other one means the whole loaf. This person wants the whole loaf. He wants the whole article. He wants to be absolutely right. By the way. if somebody asks you, what is the goal of Christianity, what would you say? I want to get one thing straight here. It's perfection. It's perfection. And we shy away from that because everybody said, well, nobody's perfect. Well, we didn't say that anybody was perfect. But the passion is for perfection. At the end of this chapter, Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Paul says, I strive to the point of agony to present every man perfect in Christ. Peter says, be holy for I am holy. Paul says, I haven't attained that. But that is my pursuit. Now God doesn't reward us for actually achieving it completely. He rewards people for their pursuit. David wanted to build the temple one time. And God did not let him build the temple. But he said, David, it pleases me you wanted to build the temple. That's all God wanted to see was a passion for it. And so a passion for perfection is what God is looking for here. All right. And so that's what we're talking about. A passion for piety. We sang the song. Uh, oh Lord within my soul I long for purity to be complete and whole. It, there is no other hope. There is no other plea. This is my only plea. <laughs> salvation full salvation free can come along through thee the, and I want all of it. William Law wrote a book A Serious Call to Devout and Holy Life. How many have read that book? Well you church leaders here should, well, I'm telling you what to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. You should buy copies and pass them out and have every member of your church read that. That's the book that the Wesleys were reading. That's the book that everybody that was doing anything during that time with the, where great things were happening in England. William Law was behind it all. They were all reading A Serious Call to Devout and Holy Life. And he devotes a whole chapter in that book to what he calls spiritual Intent. You are just as spiritual as you want to be. You are just as spiritual as you want to be. If you see somebody who is really spiritual, is dynamic and successful, and just a shining example of what a Christian should be, that person had a purpose, like our brother was talking about today. He wanted that, he had a passion for that, he pursued that, he did things to move him in that direction. You're just as spiritual as you want to be. So if you see somebody who's careless and lackadaisical and and, uh, tepid in their spiritual experience and nominal, that person never intended to be spiritual. It's just that simple. You are as spiritual as you intend to be. Well, this person wants to be perfect. He's discontented with everything that's unlike God. Everything that's unlike God to him is a little bit like ending a song on T. Can you imagine us singing a song and ending it on T instead of Doe or Me or So? In fact, Mozart had a trick he liked to play on his dad. He liked to come home late at night. His father, by the way, was a musician that gave him his original training. He was a musician too. Old Leopold was a, a professional musician. And Mozart would come home late at night. What time is this? Okay he'd come home late at night, he'd sit down at the piano and he would play a song and he would, it, it, would, it would keep rising in its uh, intensity and then he'd play the last note and then he'd go to bed I'm sorry, he played the next to the last note and then he would go to bed and poor old Leopold would toss and turn in his bed and he'd toss and he'd turn and he'd toss and he'd turn until he'd go downstairs and play the last note and then he could sleep Well, that's how this person feels about perfection. He is passionate. He will never be satisfied until he sees himself making progress toward that goal. That's his passion. Well, why does this, and a tremendous promise here. It says he will be filled. The word filled here is the Greek word for gorged. Now, if you're gorged, what does that mean? Stuffed. Running over, maybe literally. (laughs) That's a promise. Why? Why does it say that the person who has a passion for perfection, even though he hasn't achieved it, will be gorged? Because that's what you were made to be. You were not made to ingest sin, you were not made to be jealous, you were not made to be competitive. You were not made to be immoral. You were not made to lie. You were not made for any of those things. And when you do those things, they are like pouring sand into the equipment. It'd be like going out into the driveway and getting some stones and say, I'm going to make me some stone dust and bringing it in and turning on the blender and putting the stones in the blender. You won't have stone dust and you won't have a blender. The blender was not made for that. And that's how sin is. You were made for righteousness. Constitutionally. The Bible says envy is as rottenness to the bones. Even your physical body cannot handle sin. Our medical doctor was Dr. Hess. He was a German Baptist. A friend of mine one time was visiting with him. And he said 80% of my clients. Who by the way were Anabaptists. Most of them. He said 80% of my clients are not sick. Because of any pathogen. Primarily. Primarily. They're sick because they work too hard, they stress themselves out, they worry about their finances, or maybe they even indulge in things they shouldn't indulge in, in like gossip and all that ugly stuff that we get involved in if we're not careful, and then their immune system goes down, and then they get sick. We were not made for sin. sin. Sin is destructive. The Bible weighs in on this all through the Bible, that sin destroys. And so that's why it says, righteousness... Will, will more than satisfy you Because you were constitutionally made for righteousness Now you can give E. Stanley Jones credit for that uh, I've read too much of East Stanley Jones And this is his basic theme That we were made for the kingdom of God Constitutionally made for the kingdom of God Well So If we have a passion for righteousness We will be filled And the result will be the next one. I told you this is a cascade of characteristics that that build on each other. We will have a compassion for the imperfection of others. We will not have a critical judgmental attitude toward other people. We will see ourselves and our tremendous desire to be pure and perfect and see how far short we have fallen. We will realize other people are having the same struggle. And when they fail to reach their goal, we will have compassion on them because of our own pursuit our own passion for perfection and our own difficulty in that struggle and our failures in that struggle we will look at other people with compassion and that's why the next one blessed are the merciful means preparedness for purity preparedness for purity I'm sorry (laughs) I missed I jumped over one a propensity for pity sorry a propensity for pity The Greek term here means to be able to get inside another person's skin so you feel like they feel, you think like they think, and you have the same experience that they're having. That's what the word compassion means in the Greek, they say. And the Bible would give that impression. It talks about bowels of compassion. Now, when I was a little boy, I thought that was pretty earthy language for the Bible, bowels of compassion. But it means literally that. If you look up that That term, compassion, it means to have such a concern that it affects the digestive system. How many of you have ever been so concerned about something that you couldn't eat? Or at least you had no joy in eating? That's how you will feel toward other people that are failing and having faults. You will have that kind of visceral, physical response. And your desire will be to make life as easy as possible for other people. That doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable. That doesn't mean you don't challenge them or anything. But it's back to what I said. You will try to figure out how to be as kind as you possibly can in your relationship with them. To make life as easy as possible for others. What does that involve? Quick to forgive. Quick to share your resources to help them out. Slow to criticize. And never condemn. We'll talk about that in my last message, what it means to condemn. You never do that. Jesus never did it. It says, he did not come into the world to condemn the world. And he had to tell his disciples sometimes to quit doing it. I didn't come into the world to destroy people. I came into the world to save people. What is the promise? The promise is that those who are merciful will obtain mercy. The story is told of Sundar Singh. Sundar Singh was a, was a uh, uh, preacher of the gospel in India. And he wore a saffron robe, just like the holy people in his, uh, uh, India, and went around preaching. Was highly esteemed by everybody. And this is the story that's told of him: that one time he and a friend of his were going to go across the Himalayan mountains to preach to another village, and they started up this mountain, and they realized that the weather and the weather turned unseasonably cold, and they were not dressed for it. And they got part way up the mountain, and they saw a body lying in the snow on the side of the road. And Sundar's companion said to him, we can't help him. If we do, we all perish. So he went on alone. And Sundar Singh picked up the man and put him on his shoulder and started carrying up the mountain. Pretty soon, he got very warm. This man got very warm, and he revived. And after a bit, they were both walking together. And then they came upon another form in the snow. The companion that said he had to go alone to save his life. And he bent down to listen, and there was no breath there. He was dead. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I shall never forget one time I was driving with Lester Showalter on the interstate. He was driving, and it was just pouring down rain. And we, came, we passed a man who was changing a flat tire. I probably had kept on going. But he said, wait a minute, we have to go back and help that man. And he had an umbrella, and we backed up on the interstate on the shoulder... And we held an umbrella and helped that man change his tire. I was rebuked. I would not have done that. But that's the attitude that people have who are developing these characteristics that grow out of the new birth a propensity for pity. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now we get to the one that I almost missed, and that is preparedness for purity. Preparedness for purity. <clears throat> Unmixed motives. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So what gets mixed here in the heart? Self. Self. Okay? There's no insidious intrusion of self here. All right? But self really wants to intrude, and it does it in very, very interesting, pious ways. The story is told of a preacher who got a promotion to a larger church. And so in his little congregation, he, was pre- he preached his last sermon, and he went to the door to say goodbye to his parishioners. And they were coming, and they were saying how sorry they were that he was leaving. And the last two who came were two older women who were just weeping uncontrollably. And of course, he said what people often say. He said, well, don't, don't feel so bad. I'm sure the next pastor will be better. And they said well that's just the problem They always say that but they keep getting worse And worse That meant him of course See he was trying to say something real pious Real nice Uh, Don't feel bad the next pastor Will be better but down in his heart what he really wanted Was oh no nobody could be better than you Uh, Something like that is probably what he was Expecting and I'm sure he was Really delighted to hear what they said But that's what happens Self will do anything but die It'll put on a pious front It'll do all kinds of stuff It's it's just amazing what self will do It does not want to die It'll compromise almost anything if it can just live And this person Is pure in heart There's no self Expressing itself Now these are ideals I already told you that we're not going to Completely attain perfection But this, this is what this person is pursuing This is what you're seeing Less of self, in my hymnal we have a song that says, oh the bitter shame and sorrow that a time could ever be, when I let the Savior's pity plead in vain and proudly answered, all of self and none of thee. And then each verse tells how he was bringing, comes down, 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 and then the last verse it says, all of self and none of me. That's the goal, that's what we're talking about. Because you see, we see what we're fitted to see. Did you know that? If you're not fitted to see God, you won't see I have people call me all the time and say, I see no evidence for God. And I say, well, I see evidence for God everywhere I look. And I tell them about it and it doesn't impress them. They can't see God. They haven't fitted their heart. Their self self is reigning there. And they can't see God. You see what you're fitted to see. You walk out in in the night and you see stars. That's what most people see. If you've trained your eye... You will see all kinds of constellations and all kinds of relationships between those constellations and all kinds of things about them. And that sky will all of a sudden... I remember the first time I went to visit my scientific friend, Lester Showalter. He had a telescope and he had a lecture. And he showed us all this stuff in the sky that I never saw before. Why? Because I was not trained to see it. Another time I took a walk through the woods with my friend, Roman J. Miller, who was the uh, head of the science department at Eastern Mennonite College... And uh, he's a biologist. And when I walk in the woods, I enjoy the fresh air. I enjoy the smell of the leaves. And I enjoy the beauty of the trees and the wildflowers. Yeah. But in that walk through the woods, he told me the medicinal value of those, that plant and that plant. And what that tree was. And facts about those trees. It was a whole different experience. Why? Because he had eyes that were trained to see. <laughs> And you will not see God until you get self out of your life. The more of self you have, the less you'll see of God. The less you'll be like, in fact, that was Isaiah's problem. He had his focus on Uzziah. Go read about Uzziah. He was one of the greatest kings of Israel. He invented all kinds of ingenious military equipment. He won all kinds of victories for Israel. He was a powerful king militarily. And Isaiah was the prophet. And then when he died, oh, he went into the temple, he got so great, he finally decided one more thing he needed, he needed yet to be a priest. And when he tried to do that, he was struck with leprosy. And Isaiah had to hear him say, unclean, unclean, the rest of his life, and then he died. And Isaiah said, then I saw the Lord. There was too much Uzziah in his thinking. And when Uzziah died, there was everything that he put his hopes on died. And then he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And by the way, it said his train filled the temple. Everybody was impressed with God's presence in the temple. And Isaiah realized it was only the hem of his garment. (laughs) There really wasn't much of God in the temple. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw what he really was like above the temple. So we see what we're trained to see. Our single desire should be to please God. To please God. I did not say obey God. Certainly we're going to obey God. But there's a difference between obeying and pleasing. If I go to town and I tell my children. Now when I come home I want your room straightened up. And I want the dishes washed. And I want the floors uh, uh, washed. And I come home and that's done. They've obeyed me. That's fine. But if I'm in town and they do all of that. And then they say you know what dad said he'd like to have the garden weeded. Ooh, I hate to weed garden. And it's an awfully hot day, but I'm gonna weed the garden because I wanna see Dad smile. Now that's pleasing. When Christians say, or people say, if I do this, will I go to hell? My standard answer is you probably will. Not because you did that, but because of your attitude toward God. Our attitude should be to put a smile on God's face, to please God. To think of how we can do things that give him the greatest honor and the greatest glory. Well, now we're ready to face the world. (laughs) After we've developed all these wonderful characteristics we've been talking about. And so the next thing is this person is ready now to embrace peacemaking. Now notice I did not say peace loving. Peace lovers are people who compromise. Do anything just to keep things from getting upset now I'm not talking about that at all I'm not talking about people who are afraid to act afraid to wade into something I'm talking about a person who's a peacemaker a person who works at the messy job dangerous job of reconciliation Jesus made peace by come on the blood of his cross oh So peacemaking means you might have to get used to seeing your own blood. Uh Uh-huh. This is a person when there's a problem in the church, or anywhere for that matter, he actually wades into it. Now mind, he's going to be gentle, he's going to do all these things we said, but he's going to wade into the middle of that and try to bring reconciliation. He's a peacemaker. He's like John Woolman, who was a Quaker, who just thought it was despicable that the Quakers had slaves. Some of them, not very many, but a few did. And he just thought this was a disgrace that there were people in the Quaker church that owned slaves. So did he get up behind the pulpit and rail on them and damn them to hell and all that? No, he didn't do any of that. He decided that he had a dry goods store and he sold dyes and dyed clothing. And most of those dyes were, were the result of slave labor in the South. So he quit selling any dyes. He quit selling any dyed cloth. He quit wearing dyed clothing. So here's a man who Quakers were used to people with black and gray and brown. This guy stands up with a white suit on. An absolute disgrace as a Quaker preacher. His business suffered. I I don't think he went bankrupt, but obviously it suffered. But when John Woolman died, there were no Quakers owning slaves. You see what I'm saying? A person who works at making peace, at bringing reconciliation, of getting problems actually solved at tremendous cost to themselves. This story is told of a little secretary who was working for a businessman. Because people don't, the reason why it's such a dangerous uh, enterprise is because people don't like to have their sins challenged. This girl was working for a, uh, a man and he dictated a letter to her and she said, sir, I'm sorry, I can't write that letter. Well, why not? Because it's not honest. You're misrepresenting our product. You're fired. Clean out your desk. Go home. Immediately. So she started cleaning out her desk. And then he came back and he said, now wait a minute. Before you do that, does that mean that you would never cheat on this company? Oh, yes. Oh, put your stuff back in the desk. We need you here. Now, it won't always end that way, but it It might often have the effect that her words had on him. Peacemaking is costly. There's just too much peace loving. That doesn't lovingly aggressively work at reconciliation. The eighth thing here. It says blessed are they which are persecuted. This person endures persecution. I just described that. The world is not a friend to grace. Suffering is required. All they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I like the little poem by Edwin McNeil-Poteet. He cannot heal who has not suffered much. For sorrow, sorrow only understands. They will not come for healing at your touch. Who have not seen the scars upon your hands. There's nothing like suffering, to add authority and power to the gospel. Adoniram Judson, after he suffered incredible torture and persecution at the hands of the Bermuda government, when he finally was set free, he went to the king to ask permission to go preach to another tribe. And the king said, well, anybody but you. But if they see those scars on your hands... That's going to make your message powerful. No, you can't go. The early Christians won the heart of the Roman Empire by this. Think what it cost to be an early Christian. You're a stonemason. You build idol temples. You've lost your job. You're a silversmith. You make little figurines of the idols. You've lost your job. You go to a meal to one of your relatives and the first thing they do in their meals, almost all of them, was to pour out a libation to one of the false gods. So you can't go. So there are the broken relationships to say nothing of the horrible tortures that they endured under the Roman Empire. So they've they also won the world <laughs> in 200 years because of it. Tertullian was asked by the men who made the figurines. How are we going to live Does anybody know his answer Must we live That was their attitude But a person Is joyful in this I want you to turn to 1st Peter We haven't been turning to any other scriptures But I want you to turn to 1st Peter For a comment here 1st Peter of course is about suffering Our brother referred to that this morning Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now this is the verse I want. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory of God resteth upon you. There's a special glory rests upon the person who is suffering, taking it patiently and cheerfully, singing praise. He says, rejoice and be exceeding glad. By the way, one of the evidences of being filled with the Spirit, well, the evidence as far as I'm concerned of being filled with the Spirit is this very thing. We're told it's tongues by some people, but it doesn't say be filled with the Spirit, speaking of yourself in tongues. That's really where the Holy Spirit should have put that. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourself in tongues. And I say, it's not there. What is there? Singing and making melody in your heart. An unquenchable praise at the stake everywhere. When things are going wrong, you're singing. It's a song that cannot be quenched. That's the greatest evidence of the Holy Spirit. Praise in every situation and circumstance. For our light affliction worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But we think we're making sacrifices sometimes. I heard a comic one time. Mocking the modern sense of sacrifice. He said this. Many have given of their lives. And some of us. Have even given of our time. And the last point. Rejoice. He exudes praise. Brothers we are treading where the saints have trod. Christ is near in this experience than anywhere else. I heard Richard Werbrand one time. Tortured for Christ. Some of you have read his book. I heard him speak in person. And he said, this is a strange thing. But he said, in that torture and in that persecution, there was a presence of Christ that none of you experience unless you're in that. And he said, now I'm in the West. And he said, now I'm free. And now I'm not experiencing that. And he said, there's something in me that would love to go back to that. But my flesh, of course, does not want that. But he promised us that in his suffering and in his persecution, There was a special fellowship. Paul says that. That I might know the power of of his resurrection. The fellowship of his suffering. And Richard Wurmbrand said this is very real. And you'll never know it until you're in it. And that's why I look forward to the possibility of persecution. I I don't look forward to it like anybody doesn't look forward to it. But I have to believe that in that there will be something I've never experienced until then. And uh, yeah. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace with the Son of God. Uh, Joy through the cross Who for the joy that was set before him Endured the cross which was set of Christ So here we come to the end Of the Beatitudes They begin with self-renunciation And they end with rejoicing The world begins With selfishness Self-sufficiency And they end with cynicism Disillusionment And negativism I conclude by referring To the song In Shady Green Pastures, So Rich and So Sweet, God Leads His Children Along. You have to understand that that song was written by a pastor and his wife. He was a poor pastor. They never had much money. But they dreamed someday of having their own little cottage. So they saved out of their meager earnings all their lives. And in their older years, they were able finally to build a very, very modest little cottage. And they were so happy with it for a very short period of time. And then he was called away. To preach somewhere. And she went with him. And when they came home. The cottage was burned to the ground. And it was determined it was arson. By somebody that hated him. And out of that came this song. Some through the water. Some through the flood. Some through the fire. But all through the blood. Some through great sorrow. But God gives a song. In the night season. And all the day long. A professional musician visited her. At the end of her life. When he died, she had no money to go on. She ended up in the, in the poor house. But he said, even in that circumstance, he said, I never met a more joyful person than that woman. In the night season and all the day long, God gives a song. I wanted to sing that at the end, but we don't have the book here. And I don't have time, and I'm going to conclude within 30 seconds here, believe me. I don't have time to do the next verses. We're going to skip those. But the whole purpose is influence Ye are the salt of the earth Now I remind you salt is character We all want to be light But salt comes first And we've been talking about salt all, The whole way through this message What causes salt to lose its savor Now I don't understand a lot about chemistry But NACL is always salt You can't, you can't make it anything less than that There's only one way That salt loses its savor. And that is by mixture. Put water with it. Put sand with it. Put something with it. And we lose our saltiness. When we lose this character. By allowing selfishness to be mixed with it. God help us. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father we thank you for this wonderful passage. And God we know you never tell us something that's impossible. If you tell us that these can be pursued. And these can be experienced and realized. Then we know they can. Forgive us for any excuses we've made. For allowing self to crowd out these wonderful characteristics. And oh God, help us to learn to take up our cross. Help us to recognize those decisions where self wants to take over. And where you want to change us. Bless us, Lord, that in each day and every way. We may become more like Jesus by applying these principles through the new birth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (laughs) mm <laughs>